Hello! Welcome to the Kinks and Beats Daily Deep Dive. I'm your host, Tony Fry, and we today are talking about Sleepwalker by the Kinks. I want to welcome everyone who's watching live on YouTube. Uh, after last night's stream with much less glitch and complication than the Facebook Live, this is going to be the way we're going to go for most of them. Our premium ones will still have to be on Facebook for a while, but for the most part, we're going to stick to the to the YouTube. Uh, the full schedule for next week, the rest of this week and next week, is up. And you can set your YouTube preference to set a reminder for any of the episodes that you want to watch live and participate in. And if you do join me live, please say hello in the chat room and uh, chime in with anything that you'd like to add to the podcast. So, without further ado, we're talking Sleepwalker by the Kinks, which was released February 12, 1977, on the album of the same name. It was also released as the first single from the album on March 18, 1977. And this single in America hit number 48 on the American charts, which was the first top 100 hit they'd had since Ape Man from the Lola album in 1970. Um, which I think the single was 71, but um, it's still six plus years. Uh, and, and as was pretty standard for the band at the time, it failed to chart at all in the UK. Recording of the song took place between September 22nd and the 30th, um, 1976, at Conk Studios. At this point, the song clocks in at over seven minutes. And it seems like a common occurrence for this period of recording to result in some really long tracks. You know, we already talked about Life on the Road a couple days ago being edited down, and here we have Sleepwalker in at over seven minutes, and then Sleepless Night, which was recorded at these same sessions, also coming in at over seven minutes and needing to be edited down. There were two edits of this song released. The first edit is what's appearing on the album and the UK single, and the second edit is what's on the American single. Um, I don't have a copy of the American single, so I'm not sure what the difference is in these edits or if it's even a noticeable difference. It might be something very minor that um, you just kind of skip over, but there are two edits of this song listed in the um, Doug Hinman books. Honestly, I love this song, but I can't help but think they've already edited out four, three minutes of it. Um had they edited out another 30 seconds, maybe just for the single, maybe not for the album, but for the single, I think it would have charted better. Because this has all the elements of a classic rock hit. And it does something that Kinks were always good at, which was, it sounds contemporary, right? This sounds like it was recorded in 1977. Um, but it also sounds like classic Kinks. This doesn't sound anything like You Really Got Me, but it's easy to tell it's the same band. And in my opinion, that's an important trait to have if you're a band with any kind of longevity. Right? Where it's instantly recognizable as your song, but doesn't start feeling like you're just rehashing old material or whatever. Um, that's incredibly important, and I think that the Kinks might be the best of... I mean, they longevity-wise, they're one of the longest-running bands of all time. But I think they did that best, you know? Like, the Stones run for a long time. But New Stones still kind of sounds like old Stones. Where the Kinks seem to evolve and change with the times, um, sometimes going back in time, but, you know, like the, the their 70s period... Late 70s period and their 80s period sound nothing alike, but they all sound like kinks. And that's that's an interesting thing um, to be able to do. One funny thing about this song that's easy to miss 
is that the verse begins with the same chord progression as Life on the Road. It's in a different key and in a different style, so it's easy to miss. But just like Life on the Road, um, Ray starts his verse with a 1, a 5, 7, a 6, and then a 6. And then um, the the that's the only similarity because after he takes the song to a four chord and repeats it, we're on Life of the Road. It's a longer chord sequence to work through. But those opening chords, you have um, uh, the one, the five of six to the six. And depending on how you play it, sometimes it can sound like an old jazz standard. Sometimes it can sound... Like a rock song here. Sometimes it can sound like a '70s ballad, like in Life's Two, uh, uh, Life on the Road. But same chord progression. So this, uh, I think, this one to five of six. Like I said, that's not a terribly uncommon progression. They've been doing that forever, but uh, it was obviously floating around in Ray's head a lot at the time of writing this album. On the chorus, right before the guitar solo, they shift the song up a whole step to E major. And I'm all for modulation in song. I, I don't think enough songs do full modulations like that enough. Because it can add a lot of energy. It can add, um, if you've got a kind of repetitive song, it can kind of keep the ear uh, attached to that song. But um, this one seems to take a little of the steam out of this song. And I think it's because of the direction they went. And they went the same direction most people do. You usually go up a half step or a whole step. This was my music theory professor, um, who passed away a couple years ago, used to call it the Barry Manilow School of Composition, where you do the uh, looks like we, looks like we made, right? You do that little shift up the half step, you know, on the fade out. And it, and it gives you that little push over the cliff. And Barry Manilow did it a lot. But... So you usually go up a half step or a whole step. And in this case, they're going up a whole step from D major to E major. Um, and even though you think of it as upward modulation, because that's the closest, right? D to E, it's closest to go up than it is to go from D to E down. Um, because of the nature of the guitar, it feels like a step, a steep step downwards. Okay? Because when you're playing in D, you don't really hit this note at all. So if you're playing up here um, on D, you know. That's really the lowest note you're going to hit usually, is that G. But then when you switch to E, all of a sudden. So here's your first chord in D. Here's your first chord in E. Right? So even though it is technically on paper a step higher, because of the guitar, it's it seems like it's going down. And downwards modulation does not uplift you, right? It does exactly the direction of the modulation is what it does to your mood. So suddenly the lowest note uh, the instruments play is that low E, and it just sucks this, the energy out of the track. Had they started in E and modulated to D instead, even though that's downward movement, I think it would have had the exciting impact these types of modulations usually are good for because it would have felt like you were going up only because you're eliminating some of the lowest notes on the guitar and the bass. But whatever, it still sounds cool. Um, 
in a lot of ways it feels more like a classic rock song when it gets down to the to the e because d you kind of it's weird because keys shouldn't make that much difference but um when you play it in d it kind of gives you that folky sound right but when you're in e because you can hit the strings a little harder you're all you're incorporating that low string just has that classic rock feel um I also think that the breakdown happens too late in the song and probably should have come a section earlier. I mean, what do I know? But I think there are some small little tweaks. This this should have been a top 10 hit, I think. Um, and I think it's not the arrangement and it's not the song, but the actual... Uh, I mean, I guess the arrangement. But when I say arrangement, I mean like the instrumentation and all that kind of stuff. But the actual roadmap of the song, I think is just a little out of order for top 40 radio. Um, for the final refrain of the chorus though, they throw in a new hook and I'm glad they didn't use this hook for the whole song. Cause it's so cool as the outro. Cause okay. So for the chorus throughout the whole song, the chorus is going E D B A. For the outro, they switch it up. The first two chords are the same, still E to D, and then they go C sharp to C. And that C sharp is such a cool hook because you're expecting. Baby, I love you. No, you're expecting that, that B, and you get that C sharp. I mean, tell me that doesn't grab your ear. And the fact that they waited till the end to do that is a, it's a cool little trick. And I love it when bands do it. We talked about it um, a few days ago on one of the Beatles songs we were talking about, about introducing new thematic material or chord structures or something in the last few seconds of a song or the last chorus or something. Um, that sometimes they could be their own songs on their own, but... Uh, I love when bands do that, and I, I wish I did it more in the stuff that I wrote, but I don't, because I'm not these guys. But it holds more power, right? That C-sharp is not as impactful if it's what we've heard the whole time. Um, part of me wonders, in that case, if this was part of Ray's composition from the beginning, or if this is something when they're rehearsing it, one of them hits a bad chord, and everybody else is like, whoa, whoa, wait, what did you just do? Because this happens when you're playing in a band, you're rehearsing a song, and somebody just tries something out of thin air or makes a mistake, and they're like, do that again. That was it. That was the hook. So I wonder if it was, if Ray came in with this as part of the song or if this was something that was born out of rehearsing and, and recording of it. Lyrically, also, this is a cool track, and this shows the strength of Ray's lyrical composition because you can take it at face value that it's just about a dude who sleepwalks and ray is not above writing a song as mundane lyrically as i'm going to write a song about a guy who sleepwalks i mean he wrote a song about allergies so he's not above this right and, and it's fine. It works as that kind of song, and the lyrics are clever and funny and all that. But it's also written in a way. Some of the word choices he's done, he does, the way that he sings it, 
it's kind of written in a way where it can be taken with a more menacing stalker type vibe. I mean, he actually says the word night stalker in the chorus. So it's both the mundane tale of someone who sleepwalks, but you can also listen to it as like a horror story about, you know, some type of monster man, you know, like the werewolf man or something who comes out at midnight and stalks his neighborhood. You know, don't go talking in your sleep. I might come in for a peep. That's a menacing line. That's that takes a step further away from, hey, I'm just a guy who sleepwalks and, you know, makes a bowl of cereal in my sleep in the middle of the night. Like he's going door to door, you know. It's a fun lyric, though, and I like that about it. All in all, this is definitely one of the strongest tracks on the album. It's a great track to crank up super loud. Um, and it's a worthy title track. I think of all the songs on here, it had to be Sleepwalker. If you're going to name it after a song, kind of had to be Sleepwalker or Life on the Road, in my opinion, as the title tracks. Um, nobody in the live chat tonight. That's okay. You can always reach out to me to chat. Give me a call at 925-494-1739. You can email me, kinksandbeats at herohabit.com. You can comment on this video. You can comment on our Facebook group, our Reddit page, our TikTok, our YouTube channel, any of it. And you can find all that information you need at herohabit.com. There's a podcast button at the top of the page with all the information you need. And a backlog of all 220-something episodes we've done so far. So swing by Hero Habit to take care of all that. I will talk to you guys tomorrow. We're back to the Beatles tomorrow. And um, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Take care of yourself. Stay safe.